You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Big bad wolf, big bad wolf. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Fa la 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 la. It's late at night, and you're on your way through the woods. A full moon casts a blue-white light across the sky, making the trees around you look like skeletons reaching up into the crisp autumn air. And then you hear the sound of animals in the dark around you. Growls, running paws, crunching dead leaves. In that moment, it will probably be far from your mind that all those documentaries you saw about wolves say they don't attack humans. As you run, and you would run, you might think about how far you have to go to get to safety. Or you might think about whether your clothes can protect you from their teeth. Or you might find that you're not thinking at all, that your mind's given over to the lightning flashes of instinct that take over when you're in mortal peril. Maybe you wouldn't notice that the pack is split and some of the wolves are now in front of you. Maybe you would never feel the wet of your own urine, which is now spilled down your legs. And maybe you'd never consider the word that describes you best in this scenario. There, despite all your education, despite all your stamina, despite all your elaborate hopes and dreams, in this scenario, you can be accurately summed up in a single word. Pray. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and today with my co-host Ben Radford, we're going to talk about something that's probably going to make some of our listeners upset. If you find the contents of today's episode are controversial or frustrating, please come talk to us about it at our Monster Talk fan page on Facebook, or send us an email. Our contact information is available at monstertalk.org. So, what's this controversial monster? The Man-Eating Wolf. For years, I'd been fascinated by the legend of the Beast of Gévaudan, and was so curious as to what killed these people in France in the 1760s. But as I became a skeptic of various cryptozoological topics, I began to question the story itself. Were there really any deaths at all? And the answer is yes, there were. There were many of them, and they were horrible. And the likely culprit, as our interview will explain, was wolves. A weird rift exists between the oft-repeated story that wolves are essentially beautiful and harmless and the fact that they are apex predators who have to kill animals to live. Humans are animals, and where humans interface with wolves, the risk of conflict exists. Now, wolves are beautiful to me, but despite the t-shirts and posters with wolves as a symbol of nature's savagery and strength, they do sometimes kill people. 
I'm going to be revisiting this topic on another episode. I had originally wanted to make this a double-length show, but decided to split it into two episodes instead because the length of this interview and the complexity of the topic made it impossible to get it all together. So, today, we'll be focusing on what's one of the most famous instances of repeat wolf attacks in recorded history. A case where the legend insists that there was a single, mysterious, powerful, unusual, and perhaps diabolic creature to blame. A creature so renowned for its powers and savagery that an entire country knew it shorthand as La Beat, or as the English would say, The Beast. Monster Dog. Today we're talking with author Jay Smith, who's a history professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. His expertise is in French history, and he's the author of the book, Monsters of the Gévaudan, The Making of a Beast. And hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Pretty close. All right. Well, how, how should it best be pronounced? Gévaudan. Gévaudan. You, oh, wouldn't, so actually, you wouldn't actually pronounce the, the N. The N end. at the end. Okay. Good enough. Yeah, right. but very close. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> well, I, I just want to say that I... I, I Rarely do I pick up a book about monsters and find myself so educated. <laughs> I've learned so much reading this so far, and uh, I, I between uh, I must disclose I have not completely finished it. Uh, okay, but uh, I'm absolutely going to. This has been fabulous. Uh, well, and, thank you. And and it really. Uh, I'll probably cut that part out so that the audience doesn't know. <laughs> but, I mean, seriously, this is just a really, really uh, interesting and uh, uh, engaging read. So thank you for that. Um, oh, well, thank you. So yeah, I, let, let, me, let me just throw in my two cents because, uh, I mean, I, I am, like Blake and, and many of our listeners, a monster aficionado. And I've got a bookshelf full of books uh, on monsters of various types and sorts and, and you know, in, 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 from different approaches, from iconography to history and whatever else. And this really is one of the best I've read. I mean, just in terms of uh, just a really clear, crystal, um, uh, crystal clear examination of the history and the circumstances behind it. it was um, it's 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 a great book. Well, thanks so much for saying that because uh, when I set out to do this book, I was really trying to thread the needle. I wanted to write a book that would appeal to historians of France and specialists of the 18th century, but I also wanted to to write a, an engaging book that the non-specialists would also find a lot of interest in. So uh, I'm going to take your words as. Uh, <laughs> There's an indication that maybe I, I halfway oh, succeeded. Oh, you succeeded for sure. So, but why don't you give us your perspective on the story of what is this this beast of Gévaudan? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Gévaudan, Gévaudan, right? <laughs> Gévaudan, <laughs> and uh, and and um, how did you become interested in it? So, what what is the story? What's the basic yeah. story? Well, the basic story began in the late spring or early summer of 1764 when a mysterious or unknown creature began to attack and kill peasant women and children in this remote region of southern France. Uh, women and children who were tending to their flocks or their, their, uh, their herds of cattle, taking them to and from streams. And over the course of the summer of 1764, as the casualties began to mount, it dawned on the people of the Gévaudan that this was an, a, an unusual occurrence. There's something out of the ordinary here. And so as word of the ravages spread throughout the region, 
the beast, still unknown, also acquired a whole stock of fascinating characteristics. Uh, all, all sorts of strange things were said about it. It's, it's, it was not always described exactly in the same way. In fact, there was a, a good deal of, of uh, variation between the accounts that were given. But a stock of interesting characteristics was compiled over the course of the summer, so much so that news of the story eventually spread to Paris and, and uh, the cities of northern France and northern Europe, Amsterdam, London, and so on. And by the end of 1764, it had become a riveting international news story because of not only the, the continuing ravages of the beast, but also the strange things that were said about it. And so as 1765 dawned and the ravages continued, France found itself kind of embroiled in, a, in an international news story, one of the first of its kind, really. Mm-hmm. And, that con- and that continued throughout 1765. Well, throughout most of 1765, it, it, it sort of petered out. Interest in the story petered out late in the fall when there was a kind of, um, a, well, a false ending to the story when Francois Antoine, who was the royal gun bearer who had been dispatched to the Gévaudan by King Louis XV, killed a large wolf and basically decided with a handful of co-conspirators that we were going to have to call this the, the, the Beast of the Gévaudan and put an end to this thing. So they embalmed it. They embalmed it. They sent it back to Versailles. They paraded it before the king. And even though everyone could see that there was nothing all that extraordinary about this creature. There was just a kind of tacit understanding that this story had to be brought to an end. And so it was more or less officially declared that the beast of the Gévaudan had been conquered. But that was really only the end of the large and very important phase one of the story, because in December of 1765, the attacks resumed. And over the course of the next 18 months, another two dozen people were killed in more or less the same fashion and in more or less the same locale uh, where, the, where the attacks had been concentrated throughout 1765. And so, of course, the people of the Gévaudan saw the whole story as one undifferentiated experience. Uh, they did not believe that the beast of the Gévaudan was conquered in, in uh, September of 1765. It was clear to them that it had not been. And so the real end of the story didn't come until June of 1767 when a local huntsman, Jean Chastel, killed a large wolf and the ravages did indeed stop after that. So that, that, that in a nutshell, is the, the actual story. Now, what was the beast? I, I think it's almost certain that it was a wolf or wolves. And that's just based on all of the considerable circumstantial evidence about wolf attacks in early modern Europe from the 16th through late 18th centuries. We know that thousands of people died because of wolf attacks, and and not only through uh, rabies-infected wolves, but but perfectly healthy wolves. What's interesting is Ben and I had actually been researching this uh, for more than a year, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, before your book came out. And... Like one of the things we tell our listeners is we start, you, you really should always start with the null hypothesis. You know, what's the evidence that there was a beast or that people even died at all? And in this case, I mean, in fact, why don't mm-hmm. I actually ask you that? So I know that it isn't a null hypothesis, but what, yeah. what, what is the evidence for all these deaths? Well, most of the evidence takes the form of uh, 
burial notices composed by local cures who at the time at the time that they they wrote out and, and registered the burial notice usually described the the body and hypothesized the cause of death and consistently throughout 1764-1765 they would attribute the death of this or that young shepherdess to la bête féroce the ferocious beast this beast that has been terrorizing us for you know x number of months uh, sometimes sometimes the the wounds were described as uh the bite of a wolf or, or the ravages of a wolf uh more often the bodies were described as having been savaged by the ferocious beast simply that this animal that we know we're contending with um so uh, we do know that over 100 people died and scores more were attacked over a three-year period we do have documentary evidence that that the deaths occurred this is not this is not make believe and it's it was it is certain that these deaths were caused by some ferocious creature um because there there are enough eyewitness accounts of savaged bodies and decapitations and grisly disembowelments so we know the deaths occurred uh we know that they would have been shocking to witness it's not hard to understand why the locals would have been <laughs> very energized by this whole phenomenon and would have been led to imagine that they were facing a monster not hard to imagine at all um but what they did not know what they could not really know given the state of knowledge about the european wide phenomenon was that big bad wolves were roaming all over the forests of europe killing people uh in very large numbers in the thousands and they the people of the jevaudan would not have even known necessarily of earlier very similar episodes in recent french history in the 1690s to 1730s to 1750s there had been other episodes very like this not quite as extreme and not quite as long lasting but very similar in character in the uh, lyonnais region in the soissonnais which is just to, to the to the northeast of paris uh in the limousin which is not even all that far from the jevaudan but the peasants of the jevaudan would have known about this i mean they were illiterate they were isolated they live in a remote region and so it's it's understandable that they would have fallen back on folkloric explanations and uh superstitious lore to account for the horror they were living through perfectly understandable well let, let me let me follow up on that because um i i actually researched a monster called the the chupacabra and i i had the benefit of a, the creature being a fairly recent phenomenon still going on today so i could you know i could interview eyewitnesses i could go to the locations where they were mm-hmm. but in, in your case i mean you're dealing with something 250 years ago right um so you know you you can't go to an eyewitness and, and interview her and and figure out what's going on so um I mean I've done a fair amount of historical research in some aspects in, in my own stuff but how did you tackle the task uh of, of of researching it from that point of view Yeah uh I've read your book by the way and I really enjoyed it um, Thank you Yeah Because this was regarded even at the time was regarded at the time as an unusual occurrence 
lucky for me, the historian who wanted to kind of reconstruct the story, it was very heavily documented. Mm -hmm. The officials who were engaged in the hunts and all of the hunters who came in sequence uh, to search out this, this monstrous creature wrote copious correspondence to each other, uh, to officials back in Versailles, uh, to officials in Montpellier, which was the administrative capital of the province. Mm-hmm. And in addition to the, the very dense correspondence of all of these officials, there was a great deal of newspaper coverage, uh, much of which, really all of which, uh, it, it needs to be taken with a grain of salt. You have to read it very carefully. But mm-hmm. if, if, you, if you do uh, put your skeptical lens on, and read the newspaper coverage carefully and compare different accounts in different newspapers, you, you can pick up the basic details and, and uh, piece together the sequence of events in a more or less reliable fashion. So that's how I was able to do it. It just happens to be an incredibly well-documented story, one that, uh, oddly enough, was largely ignored by historians for two centuries, but, but it was a very well-documented case. Well, let me let me ask about that. I mean, the, your your book is clearly the, the the result of an amazing amount of, of careful scholarship and research. So, uh, how long did it take you to write the book, and and what what drew you to it, and decided, hey, I want to yeah. spend an enormous amount of time and effort and money uh, tackling this. Yeah. Uh, I think this is a great story, though I have told it so often, I've begun to wonder about its veracity. Um, but but I think this is the way it happened. I was uh, looking through images from the 1760s in the French National Library back in the summer of 2003 because I was finishing up work on another book and the 1760s happened to figure in this other book. And so I wanted some illustrations from that period for that book. And I stumbled on these engravings from 1764 that depicted this ghastly creature. And I saw that it was labeled La Bête du Gévaudan, the Beast of the Gévaudan. And all of these engravings, there were about a dozen or so of them, had extensive captions that allowed me to piece together a a narrative of the beast's exploits over a period of several months, almost a year, in fact. Mm -hmm. And and it dawned on me that uh, here was a story from the mid-1760s that had captivated the French for over a year, had led artists to produce beautiful, finely detailed engravings of this obviously uh, fantastical, mythical creature. And and I soon learned after, had also generated lots of newspaper coverage. And yet, I knew next to nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I, I immediately recognized two things. Here was an intrinsically interesting story that I wanted to to know more about and that I thought readers would enjoy learning more about. And how funny it is that I, as a specialist of the 18th century, know next to nothing about this creature. (laughs) (laughs) How is this possible? And so I was was doubly drawn to the story. I could see it was an interesting story just on its own merits, but I, I also was curious to learn the history of the story. Not just the history of the beast, but the history of the story, how the story itself had been 
well, more or less driven underground, I would say, in the course of the late 18th and 19th centuries, so it turned out. And then and it reemerged in a, in, a, in a fantastical form in the 20th century, but in a way that historians weren't interested in, in noticing or writing about. I mean, that's why I knew nothing about it. You, you don't find descriptions of the Beast of the, of the Gévaudan in French history books, uh, not, not those written by French scholars or, uh, or Anglo-American scholars. It's just it's absent, and so I, I was uh, I was drawn to it for both of those reasons. I just recently went to Disney and Epcot, and you know they have at Epcot a a French section with a lot of uh, French people working there. Um, many mm-hmm. of many from France, not just people who speak French, you know, right. Quebec or whatever. And mm-hmm. and so I did this extremely unscientific thing. Is while I was there, I I asked <laughs> every French person I met. Um, about the beast and mm-hmm. and all of my responses in this unscientific survey fell into three categories. Um, they didn't know anything about it at all, uh, or mm-hmm. or they thought it was a serial killer, <laughs> or they thought it was a single unusual animal, probably something from another country. So uh, I, uh-huh. it, it was really an interesting. I mean, that was the only three. You know, and there were a lot of people I talked to, and mm-hmm. it always fell into one of those three categories. And most people did know about it. And the, mm-hmm. the, by far, most people thought that this was all the work of a serial killer. I love that. So uh, I thought I that love was it. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I thought you might. Uh, yeah, it's so typical. It so, is so typical. Which ties yeah. to the, which is really fascinating in your book is you have you present this intersection. Uh, here you have these people with a poor local historical knowledge. They have their folklore or whatever, but they really don't have access to a, a quick way to look up what local you know history is mm-hmm. regarding deaths from animals. Right. And then you've got this new technology of these uh, quick, uh, fast newspapers coming out mm-hmm. and, and and mixing uh, lore. And then you have this uh, you know, political pressures and social pressures and religious pressures. And you're just laying it all out there. Why, why, why there is this amazing, uh, I don't know, nexus might not be the right word, but there's this, this everything's aligned. What do you call that? Syzygy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's true. That's, that's the way I see it. Yeah, and and, the, and I think you make a really good case that this this would I, I think it would have happened sooner or later somewhere. This just happened to be the first place where you had these 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 natural events uh, happening with uh, ignorant people who could just spread news really quickly, which is has mm-hmm. a, amazing parallels to what we see now in the monster world. As far as I'm concerned, I'm a skeptic, but we, mm-hmm. we see this all the time with uh, new claims where people find this, the scantest of evidence and it goes wild on the internet, like the Montauk monster, for example, just, mm-hmm. uh, uh mm-hmm. it's crazy, but you, it's just, you do a brilliant job of laying it out there. So, mm. well, thank I, you. I'm going to keep saying you're brilliant. Okay. So just <laughs> bear with me. Um, anyway, <laughs> not really a question there, but I just wanted to say, uh, you, you make a really excellent case for that. Um, Thank you. I, I, it, do, it does. It does seem to me that the, the early and mid 1760s were just incredibly uh, ripe for this kind of event to occur. I mean, uh, it was almost as I suggest in one of the early early uh, chapters. It was almost as if if the beast had not exist had not existed, it, it, or if the beast had not come along, it, you know, it would have had to be invented by someone. Mm-hmm. Um, because it just it resonated in so many different keys and for, and for so many different reasons that were bearing down on the culture. 
Well, let, let me pick up on that because I one of the things I enjoyed about the book was when you were uh, when you were talking about the not only the, ge- the geographical but also the political climate and the cultural climate because I think you know for modern readers you know I mean we can maybe go we can go see a a film like you know Brotherhood of the Wolf or we can mm-hmm. see some historical thing and you know we we sort of get a sense you know if the costume designer did his or her job right then we have we have some sense of you know what the people wore or what they ate you know you don't see people sling around so cell phones but it, it's it's hard for it's hard for i think a lot of modern folks to really get a a good historical sense of the context in which these things these the you know the, the beast and, and other things emerge so can you talk a little bit about that and, and not only that but also the geography i mean when i when i had uh, when i had, uh, was really doing some re- research on it um, I had sort of pictured these. I live in New Mexico, so I, mm-hmm. I, I'm sort of in the desert. So I didn't really picture that part of France as desert. Really, <laughs> I can't say yeah. that. But I didn't. I didn't. I sort of pictured meadows and fields. But in mm-hmm. fact, as you point out, I mean, a lot of it is really harsh terrain, which kind of, which, which really, it, it's it's an element in the story that I hadn't expected. Yeah, yeah, it's very harsh terrain. The Givaudan is part of uh, this large landmass called the Massif Central which is this uh, a mountainous mass that just emerges from the soil in south-central France and covers a, a very large expanse. Um, and the Gévaudan happens to be one of the more rugged regions, even within that rugged region. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there there. There are, are uh, granite outcroppings everywhere. There, there were, I don't know if there still are, but there, there were uh, marshes and bogs around every corner. Um, very dense forests, impassable forests, uh, streams and, and rivers running underground. Um, it was a very, uh, very difficult, unpredictable terrain. And this one would think was one of the reasons that uh, wolves were, were able to reign over the territory more or less unchallenged for a period of years. Mm-hmm. It was also, it was a sparsely populated region for that, for because of the geographical or geological features, it was sparsely populated. It, it, it was not uh, an area well suited to agriculture, so it couldn't sustain a large population. And, and uh, as I recall, pretty brutal winters. Very, yeah, that's right. Brutal winters, fickle weather, uh, fog, rain, and and snow that would last it into May and June. Um, so it's a very difficult terrain, and if you want to know why it took expert hunters fourteen months to bag a large wolf in the Gévaudan, this is reason number one. Mm-hmm. It was just an incredibly difficult terrain, uh, and terrain that none of them were uh, familiar with. None of them, because they were all Parisians. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to the extent that they had hunting experience, it was in the plains of northern France for the most part. Um, so they, they were not expecting what they found when they arrived in the Gévaudan. Most of them had never been there. Nobody mm-hmm. visited Nobody visited the Gévaudan. There was nothing to see there. Right. Why would they, um, right? <laughs> right. There's nothing to see. And so they, 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 they went off uh, with delusions of grandeur and were shocked to find this uh, – often impassable, very difficult terrain when they got there. So no wonder it took so long. So, so you have this, um, this general accepted knowledge that there is a single 
wild beast attacking people and killing them. And villagers are being conscripted, hired uh, to, mm-hmm. to beat the woods and, and, and go around and look. Uh, and and then what are they looking for? What are the, It seems like uh, the thing that they're uh, being uh, – they're chasing is – well, you, you tell it. I mean, it's, it's a lot of different things they're being told. But what, 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 are, what are people describing? You know, virtually all, I guess probably, probably all of the hunts that were carried out under the direction of, these, of this sequence of hunters, uh, the Dragoon Captain Duhamel, the, the Norman aristocrat Donaval, and then the gun bearer Antoine, all of these hunts were carried out as wolf hunts. I mean, they, they used the techniques that they would have used if they were hunting wolves in the forests of uh, Fontainebleau in, in northern France. And, and of course, the, the, the peasants of the south and, and the, the nobles, the noblemen of the south, also had a certain amount of experience in uh, rooting out wolves from their forests. <clears throat> and so they were using those standard techniques of beating the bushes, placing people around the perimeter of the forest with guns, uh, though... Here's reason number two why it took so long to kill a large wolf down there. The peasants didn't have guns because they weren't allowed to have them. Uh, they, mm-hmm. they did their hunting with pitchforks <laughs> and spades. Um, but the, the, the peasants would beat the bushes, and the, the noblemen, mounted on horse and uh, armed with, with muskets, would be, would be uh, uh, arrayed around the perimeter. And sometimes something would emerge from the depths of the forest, and sometimes not. But in almost all of the, the cases where something did emerge and there was an encounter, well, in most cases, when there was an encounter between these hunters and a creature emerging from the woods, the people there on the ground described the creature in outlandish ways. Um, they said, among other things, that it had blazing red eyes, that it sometimes walked on its hind legs, that it had the ability to jump over high walls in a single bound, more or less like Superman, that uh, its its hide could repel lead shot, that uh, it it, uh, could cover immense distances in a a single day or in a a matter of hours, were people actually, sorry, were people actually alleging that it was a werewolf? Almost certainly, some of the peasants were alleging that it was a werewolf, though in the official documents that were recorded about these various sightings, uh, at least I did not detect a single werewolf mention. Uh, so the subdelegates and, and the cures uh, who, who drafted the documents and wrote the letters to officials in, in high places did not allege that uh, the peasants were talking about werewolves. Um, but it almost certainly they were, because some of the werewolf reports did make it into newspapers. And rumors of werewolves did percolate up to the published literature. Hey there, Monster Talkers. We'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. 
hosted by a true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and WTF stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorn, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff. To Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, was it an accident? Or was it murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor and takeaway and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. There is so much in our universe that remains hidden. Until now. My name is Kristen Seavey, and I have some stories that you might want to hear on the podcast, The Hidden Staircase. Whether it's true crime, paranormal occurrences, or perhaps something beyond the stars... I keep all their stories safe in my library. So come with me down the staircase, pull up a chair, and let's discover the enigmas that remain hidden from us all. Listen to The Hidden Staircase now wherever you get podcasts. Um, uh, and, and, and in France, they call them uh, loop guru, right? That's right, Lou Garou. Lou Garou. Right. So that you don't, they don't use their N's or their P's, is what you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> usually, usually the final consonants aren't pronounced. Is that yeah. kind of wastefulness that's causing so much problems today? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Not using your M's and P's. Right. So, so, <laughs> all right, so what does that actually translate to, Lou Garou? Uh, well, Lou is, Lou is wolf. Okay. Um, uh, Garou, that, that's... You know, that's something I've never really looked into. I don't know exactly. I don't know what the literal translation of Garu would be. We'll just say Big Bad. It's just like they said on Buffy. Well, it's interesting because this story, as I understand it uh, specifically, uh, we'll get to that, I, I imagine. But um, Kurt Siadmak, or Syed Siadmak, I think is how you pronounce his name, the guy who wrote the original Wolfman movie for Universal. He, uh, at least in lore, is uh, supposed to have pulled the idea that silver will kill a werewolf from this tale, specifically because of the silver bullet story being involved with bringing down the beast the second time. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so the the story, whether they thought it was a werewolf or not, it apparently has a, a really important impact on uh, modern werewolf lore, most of which is made up. Mm-hmm. So. So. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. I love it. I love it because it's such a fiction. Yeah. Um, it's it's a 20th century invention. This story that a silver bullet brought down the second wolf in June of 1767. There's no documentary evidence that silver was used, um, and, and no one no one discussed silver having been used in in 1767. Well, what, so, what, what is that story? Why don't you flesh that out for us? Well, I, I think it's 
you, you mean the the later yeah the, 20th the, century edition? Well, the I, you know, I, yeah, either either that, but I mean, I was specifically I referring to the the Silver I, Bullet and Jean mm-hmm. Chastel. Right, I think it's almost certain that the Silver Bullet myth appeared in some fictionalized or semi-fictionalized account of the beast in the 20th century. There was a kind of there was an upsurge. Uh, an interest in the beast story from the 1880s and 90s on into the 1930s. And many things were written about the beast in that 30 or 40 year period. Much of it uh, fictitious in one way or another. And and there were also novels written about the beast. And I, I confess that I have not been able to find the first instance when this this uh, myth is introduced into the to, the to the beast lore, but I'm quite sure that it happened in the early 20th century uh, or late 19th. Well, I was going to say uh, if it, if it didn't predate um, the Wolfman movie, that would be very interesting. So if, if we can't mm-hmm. find anything earlier than that, because like, again, the common legend in, in movie buff lore is that that Kurt Siodmak, I think that's how it's pronounced. Uh, I might be totally messing that up. I am. I apologize to our listeners. Um, this is this episode is rife with me and uh, having pronunciation <laughs> problems. <laughs> uh, if 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 that's not true, it, it could be that you know it, that it's the other way around that his silver bullet influenced all of the werewolf literature. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. It. So I think it's I think it's I think it's certainly plausible that he did pull it from the beast lore that was circulating at the time in the early part of the 20th century. I think it's very plausible, but he didn't, he didn't get it from 1767 because it didn't happen. You know, I'm, you know, Google has in their Google books, some really good online tools for searching for phrases. So I'm not sure what the French phrase for silver bullet would be, but um, uh, maybe we could look that up and see if we can find it in print. Uh, Cause mm-hmm. really, yeah, that's a fascinating uh, little Things to add on to your research, right? So. <laughs> right. Well, I was I was curious about the the nature of the deaths. Uh, I mean, you've got these these um, these killings that apparently can be attributable to anything from a serial killer to a wolf to an extra you know, <laughs> not extraterrestrial, but certainly a, a demonic entity. What, right. Uh, what was unusual about these deaths, uh, just in terms of the, the way that they were, um, the way they occurred, or the way they were found? Well, they were. I mean, technically, they, they were not unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, right. if, if they had been compared to other wolf killings in other regions and other times, it would have looked perfectly normal. Right. Um, but uh, they were... What, what, they, what did people think was unusual? Yeah, they were certainly ghastly. They were certainly ghastly. Um, and there was much talk uh, about the decapitations, and there were a lot of them. Uh, at least a couple of dozen of, of the victims had their heads removed. And there were other, you know, odd features, at least in some of the killings, that that made some wonder about diabolical influences or um, or other sorts of evil intentions that would not have been characteristic of wild animals. Uh, for example, almost all of the bodies that were recovered and that were described with any detail. Um, were savaged only from the waist up and the chest cavity was torn open and uh, you know, the, the liver and kidney and, and heart were, were eaten and uh, often the, the blood from the chest cavity was removed or so it seemed anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time that 
the head was nowhere to be found. So, so you can understand why that would be a ghastly, shocking sight. Um, and when it happened repeatedly, uh, it was easy to imagine that there, there were supernatural or diabolical forces at work. Um, and so there, there, was, there was partly a vampiric element to it? The bug loss uh, and... That's an interesting question, um, you know, because vampire, an interest in vampires also emerged out of 18th century literature. But vampires were not mentioned, as far as I know, mm-hmm. uh, in 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 the Gévaudan in 1764 1765. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence of, of uh, mentions of vampires in the, in the documents. But there's ev- but, but there's talks about blood loss. But yes, uh, right. Or at least uh, the gore, the gore of the blood, and where and where uh, the fact that the beast evidently liked to lick blood and, and would lick the blood down to the down to the ground and would would remove the blood from this or that part of the torso that had been shredded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, that the beast was often described as having some lurid or strange fascination or attraction to blood. Mm. Yeah, but vampires, I, I, I have not seen them. Okay. They have not, they have not popped up. Yeah, so that actually ties in uh, to some of our questions, which, like, <clears throat> did, did most people think it was a normal animal or a supernatural animal? And how did that tie into the church's response? I wouldn't even want to venture a guess uh, about, you know, what percentage uh, of the locals believed that it was a wolf and, and what percentage believed it was a witch and so on. Certainly many people believed there were diabolical forces at work, but many people also believed it was a wolf. And it's, it's you know, both stories were current uh, and, and others as well. Um, but I don't think there's any question that the church contributed to the kind of uh, 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 magical hysteria that gripped the countryside in late winter and early spring of 1765 because the Bishop of Mende, in a public proclamation that he, he uh, published on December 31st, 1764, called the beast the scourge of God, described it as having powers that were uh, special powers that were, were, were given to the beast by God, so that it could act as a tool of divine vengeance. Mm-hmm. Now, he didn't call it a witch. He didn't call it a werewolf. He didn't call it uh, a supernatural being exactly. But he did say that it was working with divine magic and that it was no wonder that it was, in, uh, that, that, that it was avoiding uh, uh, the huntsmen in these organized hunting parties, that it was able to make itself invisible in, in essence. No wonder. It had God on its side. And so that made the local peasants and Many of the cures, no doubt, believed that there was a form of magic working over the land in 1764 and 1765. And so uh, th- those sorts of beliefs uh, merged easily into other mm, less uh, uh, less orthodox superstitions. Interesting. So, so is, there's definitely an element of uh, 
of uh, atoning for sins. And uh, that was one of the things that, that struck mm-hmm. me was uh, the I, I've always been interested in the um, the social role of monsters. And, uh, you know, oftentimes monsters will be you know, the boogeyman, you know, don't do this because bad things will happen to you. And, you know, don't go in the lake because the lake monster will get you, that sort of thing. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and I saw exactly the same sort of thing in your book is just sort of seeing the, the social control aspects of it. It was just <laughs> it was just fascinating. It was just, that's, that's true. Let me it's, it's a striking. It is a striking document. The the Bishop of Mons, uh, uh, Montemont, it's called an official announcement or a circular. It's a, it's an amazing document because yes, in a, in, a, in essence, he's saying uh, if you don't want to have to contend with monsters, you better start doing your religious duties and raise your children right and raise them to be uh, humble and devout and raise them to care for the poor. And then you'll have no worries. Otherwise, look out for the monsters. <laughs> It'll all be good. <laughs> well, I was going to follow up. One of the most popular theories, as you know, as you talk about, is that it's a hyena. I think uh, Joe Nickel in his recent book, Tracking the Man Beast, suggested that the beast was a hyena. What, what do you think of that explanation? Well, actually, I just quickly, Ben, Joe's actually backed away from that. And specifically, mm-hmm. uh, in a conversation I had with him, he talked about uh, Jay's book as being a uh, – uh, one of the reasons he's uh, endorsing the wolf hypothesis. Wow. Very good. Ah. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> you, you, you're, to hear. you're already influencing the scholarship. Well done. <laughs> it's nice to hear. Um, because the hyena hypothesis is, I mean, it, it, it's fascinating why it is, has had such a strong hold on the imagination for two centuries. But there just isn't any evidence. There just isn't good evidence for it. Uh, but it, it, it caught on very early, thanks in large part, I believe, to the popularity of uh, the Comte de Buffon and his natural history in the late 1750s and early 1760s. And he had described the hyena in a, uh, in, in a very uh, fantastical way. Um, and also because there had been this other text written in the mid-1750s called A Dissertation on the Hyena drawn from ancient sources and, and, and other more recent sources that also describe the hyenas having these weird otherworldly abilities. And I think it was just in the culture, this, this uh, a propensity to fear the hyena and to believe that hyenas were capable of uh, supernatural, extraordinary things. And, and so when the first, uh, first couple of people described this beast as having hyena-like features, hyena-like qualities it caught on immediately and throughout 1765 it remained one of the most popular theories of the beast's identity even though the experienced huntsmen on the ground in the province throughout the late spring and summer of 1765 discounted the theory they, they didn't take it seriously at all uh, until until september of 1765 when Francois Antoine, uh, after killing his large wolf, in order to make it seem like an extraordinary event, allowed others to describe that wolf as having hyena-like features. Mm-hmm. And, and the, that, that more, I'm sorry. Sorry. So would you say the uh, the hyena hypothesis is laughable? I just wanted to do my <laughs> Blake and his puns. <laughs> I, I have to say it. It. Uh, it is pretty laughable. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is. <laughs> uh, I, I know that uh, there was a, a TV 
uh, a documentary on on the the beast a couple of years ago on I don't know something like Animal Planet. Yes, or, there was. Yes, there was. And, I and think it was and, actually uh, History Channel, but yeah. Okay, yeah. yes, that's right. It was the History Channel, and and those two sleuths also decided that it was a hyena. But, they sure uh, did. They sure did. <laughs> Blake, actually, Blake and I watched that together, and we were we were doing our best to um, mimic hyenas anyway. is what we were doing. <laughs> 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 it was an interesting, entertaining show. But I like the were part big. where they went in the cave. I thought that was nice. And this beautiful <laughs> scenery. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> right, right. No, I... Yeah, but, <laughs> but they were basing their conjectures on uh, inventions from the 19th and 20th centuries rather rather than from... Uh, rather than on the, the documentary evidence of the time. But that's that's neither here nor there. Well, and let, let me just follow up on that real quick because that's that's one thing that that we see in doing this research is the the importance and value of going back to original research, you know, going back and and going to the the the, the first references to those things and and not just accepting other people's paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, over and over and over again, I see this in my research and, and Blake as well and others, where you know the the. To my mind, one of the main faults and one of the main reasons why so many of these these mysteries, including cryptozoological ones and you know strange animal ones, is that the reason these things don't get solved and there's no progress made on them is because they they simply don't do good scholarship and maybe they yeah. don't, maybe they don't come from an academic background so they're not used to that. But um, that that I think is is one of the strongest points of your work and and certainly the book is you do bring. Um, very rigorous scholarship, and it and it really shows. And so that's um, that was well done. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah. Well, uh, with regard to the hyena in particular, um, you know what happened was that the the story of the beast got renewed for various reasons that we could talk about if you want to, but we don't have to. In the late nineteenth century, basically because of a new interest in French folklore and folk tales, and uh, and so the, the the story was excavated in a sense, and all of the original journalistic commentary that surrounded the hunt for the beast was just you know, entered into the documentary record and accepted uncritically. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it, it had, even though it was of course separated from the original context by over a century, and many people had in the meantime discounted and discredited much of that journalistic commentary. It, it gained new life as the story of the beast itself gained new life in the late 19th century. And so this hyena hypothesis lived on well throughout the 20th century and into our own day because of this uncritical acceptance of documents that were excavated a century after the event and just never read with serious uh, attention. One of the things I had been thinking about in, in my own research was would it be possible to do an exhumation of any of the victims and see if there was evidence of a particular animal being involved in the attacks? And I'm not sure how that would be culturally received over there. Um, Right. But I think after reading your book, I don't think it's necessary. Just by, I think, the the sheer weight of the evidence uh, and a little bit of Occam's razor action, uh, mm-hmm. you, you make a really, really good case that it was wolves and that the reason that seems so outrageous now has more to do with the fact that wolves have this reputation as being 
misunderstood and, and essentially harmless. But uh, I was just going to suggest that when you do the second part of this, of this uh, two-part investigation, that you, that you consider asking your, your, uh, your guest um, whether he and, and, and uh, his colleagues in the field accept that animals have histories too and animal species have histories and are embedded in historical circumstances just as humans are. Because I, I think that's something that's easily overlooked by biologists or by zoologists. Um, they, they instinctively assume, at least I, this is an assumption that I have, that they instinctively assume that animals um, ranging over a, a, a very different territory three or five or 200 years ago would have behaved just as they do today as they are observed um, in our world. Whereas I just don't think that's, hmm. I don't think that's likely. Well, you know, the, 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 the way I had approached it was um, my hypothesis is without having actually had that second interview mm-hmm. that, that there are going to be conditions which will mm-hmm. drive a wolf or a pack of wolves to become man killers, and that mm-hmm. if we look at the historical uh, context of these these killings in France, we'll find that very similar conditions to those that we would expect will actually have been occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I mean, and I'm not an expert, so I don't want to wildly right. speculate. I think there's been plenty of speculation on this thing already. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. That's for sure. Nor am I. I'm no I'm no zoologist either, so I I should uh, just shut my trap. No, no. Well, but, I'm just saying I I, I I I have a ton of questions for him, um, but mm-hmm. I, I am uh, really interested uh, to find out if that hypothesis is correct. And, uh, and yeah. you're right. I think it not it matters not only what the uh, general behavior of animals are. Uh, you know, as a, as a whole, but uh, what that particular pack has been through, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a war impacts uh, everything. Uh, and, yeah, that's and, right. And mm-hmm. and the, the things that were happening in France, we haven't even mentioned it, but a lot of your book is about how the French and Indian War devastated France. Um, mm-hmm. Not just in the sense that people were dying on battlefields, but also economically and um, uh, culturally just uh, had a right. huge impact. So mm-hmm. um, that would have impacted the livestock and it would have impacted the people who raised it and the animals that predated. Uh, I think all of those right. things are going to come to play. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so. that's right. Well, let me ask you about uh, the, the different treatments. As you know, and, and as you talk about some in the book, uh, yours is only the the uh, the latest and best uh, is discussion of, of of the the beats of Givadon, but there's been you know countless other ones, everything from poems to to other books and other you know d- discussions and whatever else. So uh, what uh, obviously you know a big part of what you bring to it is, as I mentioned before, good scholarship and of course the perspective of time. Um, but what are what are what were some of the earlier uh, accounts of this and other earlier other writers and researchers' explanations for them? Uh, just maybe if you want to highlight two or three um, writers and what they thought. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a lot has been written on the Beast of the Gévaudan. That's for sure, uh, especially in France. Very little in English, but uh, a lot in, in French. And uh, though very little of it, I have to say, um, was very historically informed. A lot of it's entertaining. Uh, 
Um, I mean, many of these people, even if they didn't didn't take the time to learn about France in 1765, did bother to go to the archives and, and look at at least some of the archival documents, and 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 they they studied the narrative of events, and they got acquainted with the, some of the victims and their families, and they know things about them and their and their villages that uh, uh, you know the, the casual student wouldn't have, have bothered to learn. Mm-hmm. So they're they're often quite uh, entertaining to read, but they're usually very narrow, um, and and in their uh, scope and their conceptualization and in the kind of argument that they present. Almost always the authors of these uh, texts are, are pushing some theory about the beast's identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the most influential, we've already alluded to this theory, uh, the the, the theory of the serial killer. Mm -hmm. This, this um, theory emerged again in the early 20th century uh, I think tellingly, given that this is a time when news of Jack the Ripper was in the was in the air, and and uh, the French were dealing with their first experiences with serial killers, uh, but there was a doctor in Montpellier who wrote a very influential article in 1911, suggesting that the Beast of the Gévaudan had been a human, a human serial killer, a, a psychotic who was perhaps something of a sexual pervert or something. And, um, and not only, not only was, uh, the Gévaudan afflicted by this phenomenon, but he inspired copycat criminals elsewhere in the realm hmm. in the 1760s. And this, this just, this, this proved to be a, a, an extremely influential uh, hypothesis that has been picked up in, you know, countless texts ever since. And obviously, it, it uh, has made its influence. It's had made its impact on uh, uh, French citizens who work in, in uh, Disneyland. Uh, Clearly, uh, <clears throat> it's just you know it's it's one of the favorite hypotheses, and it is one of the hypotheses that informed Brotherhood of the Wolf, the, the entertaining film that came mm-hmm. out about ten years ago. Um, other other hypotheses involve hybrid animals. Uh, the dog-wolf hybrid uh, trained by some sick local uh, nobleman is, mm-hmm. is, a, is a favorite hypothesis by many. Um, and, and the wolf hypothesis is also favored by a number of serious students of the story of the Beast of the Gévaudan and a number of books have been written over the years uh, arguing that, that the, the beast could only be a wolf, but arguing in a way that was focused exclusively on um, evidence from the killings mm-hmm. and, and not the, the larger cultural landscape. Well, it, it sounds like a lot of most of the previous uh, people had, had basically begun with the conclusion and worked backwards looking for evidence for it instead of doing it the, the more scientific way, which is following the evidence to whatever conclusion it goes to. Right. I think that was often the case. Yeah, that's, that's right. And it's also the story is also it lives on because it it uh, it is associated with or identified with the the culture of the Gévaudan. and mm-hmm. it's kind of uh, I don't know like it's similar to stories about the New Jersey Devil or, or uh, uh, Lobo. Uh, <laughs> 
right. you know, <laughs> you know, a, a, animal, uh, mythical or semi-mythical animals that are associated with a region and the, and the culture of the region. And so there are locals who keep telling the story just because they're enamored of the story and, uh, and of the, the celebrity that it has brought the region. Yeah. We had an opportunity to talk to uh, a paleontologist about the dire wolf hypothesis and, uh, he, he thought it was pretty laughable, not because, not not just not because of the uh, the unlikeliness that a dire wolf would still be alive, but, but just because it would not. There's no particular reason why a dire wolf attack would be any worse than a regular wolf attack. You know, mm-hmm. um, it just it, that they, they weren't that much bigger than regular wolves. I guess was the idea. But mm-hmm. if, if if it was wolves, and I and I think you make again a, an extremely compelling case that it was. Uh, two things were, were, were there um, do you know if there's any documentary evidence besides the fact that all these bodies were piling up of an increase in wolf attacks and when the attacks stopped do you think what do you what do you attribute that to yeah I mean I, I think it's I think it's pretty easy to explain actually to tell you the truth uh, well for, to answer your first question yeah there there is plenty of uh, circumstantial evidence that um, uh, wolf attacks were on the rise in France, really from the mid 17th century through the mid 18th century. There was this was a, a particularly bloody period in, in French history. Lots of lupine predation, and there's much evidence for it. There's a great book. I, I should, probably should have mentioned this earlier uh, that I discuss in in the Monsters book. Um, it was published in 2007 by a French scholar a rural historian who went to the trouble of cataloging all of the wolfy, wolfly uh, violence inflicted on humans between about 1500 and, and 1900. Um, it's exhaustively researched and it shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that, you know, that the wolves were inflicting a lot of damage between about 1650 and 1750. And it, it's, it, it slows down significantly in the late 18th century I think largely because the state put in place uh, an effective and well-coordinated program of wolf hunting. Um, In the revolutionary decade, 1790s, there is evidence that documentary evidence that wolf hunters are killing thousands of wolves per year on French territory. Um, there are some other episodes in the early 19th century, and even in the late 19th century, there are a few random scattered attacks. But I think it's, it's the, the progress of modernity, of, uh, of clearing for railroads and you know, modern agriculture and uh, the, the, the spread of urban centers and uh, um, the, uh, the diminishing of, of wolf habitats that ultimately brings an end to the to the entire phenomenon by about 1900 there have been in the course of the 20th century a few attacks here and there on livestock but i don't believe there have been human fatalities in the 20th century or there were in the 20th century and none in, in the 21st uh, so uh, wolf attacks have in, indeed been focused on on sheep and cattle since about 1900 and i think that is almost undoubtedly associated with modernity itself. Um, French people live in a different world in 1900 than they, than they had in, in 1750. 
much more urban, you know, much more urban, a much more mechanized economy, uh, fewer forests, and fewer wolves, because they had been largely eliminated thanks to the state program that took over in the 1780s and 90s. So, so in a way, it was it was actually it was actually a very effective. I mean, if, if you're trying to eliminate the the, the beast, then Kill, kill all the wolves, and you, actually, you do a good job. That's exactly what you need to do, that's, right? That's the thing to do. That's that's, right. Just kill everything and hope that the beast is among them. Right. Well, um, I just have to say, you know, when reading reading the book, I was struck by the the parallels uh, to the research, uh, the chupacabra research I'd done. And in both cases, you had ordinary predation. In the case of the chupacabra, of course, you have livestock predation. In the case of the beast, you have uh, predation on humans. That was spectacularly misinterpreted. I mean, just just amazingly and jaw-droppingly misinterpreted, but in in really culturally fascinating ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want want to touch on the ways in which the story of the beast got exaggerated over time. It's you know its size, its abilities, and and the way that that was fueled uh, by an eager media, and the, the ways in which the the beast was a product of the media and the press. Can you talk a little about that? Sure. Yeah, the, the, the mid-18th century was a time when uh, journalism just exploded uh, in, in France and, and throughout Europe. Um, it became the more or less modern enterprise that we, we recognize today. And it was in this period, uh, mid, mid to late 18th century. And there was one very skilled journalist in particular who worked for a paper in Avignon called the Courrier d'Avignon, who saw the the news value and, and the, the marketability of this story and who began flogging it very early on uh, by November and December of 1764. And and he became the really the the prime conveyor of news about the beast, not only to readers of newspapers all over France, but to other newspaper editors who sometimes simply plagiarized his stories or, or, or copied large chunks of them mm-hmm. or, re, or repackaged them and, and, uh, and, and, and offered new kinds of descriptions of the same events. Um, and the, the image of the beast, uh, understandably, almost necessarily, continued to grow over the course of 1765 simply because of its persistence. The, the, the fact that skilled huntsmen were unable to defeat it and uh, were unable to, to root it out. Mm-hmm. It, 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 even, it even killed young shepherdesses under their noses while, while they were hunting for it. Um, so it, it's naturally it acquired greater and greater more stupendous characteristics with each new report, especially from about January 1765 on. And it's it's the the spectacular, sensational nature of that reporting that helps to turn, I I believe, helps to turn public opinion against the the, the mythological, the more mythological uh, representations of the beast in the summer of 1765. That is, the Courrier d'Avignon and other papers like it had taken the exaggerations so far mm-hmm. that that um, impartial readers could see the could see the exaggeration at work 
and, and, and began to cast a more skeptical eye on the stories and on the whole phenomenon. So you do see evidence here and there in the documents um, from about, I'd say, June, July, 1765 on, that the public is beginning to lose interest and beginning to lose faith in the, the sensational character of this monster. Interesting. We're out of time, unfortunately. Um, I just, again, I want to say any of our listeners who are interested in having a, a thorough and complete uh, monster library, when, when they, they need this book. If you like French history, you need this book. And if you just really want to know what was going on at France when this, this monster was, uh, or well, Okay, when these wolves were killing people, <laughs> I think this well, they were book, pretty monstrous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, certainly the, their their activities were monstrous. Uh, if you happen to be the prey, uh, I, I think uh, Monsters of the Gévaudan, uh is an excellent addition to any bookshelf. So uh, that being oh, thank said, you. thank you. You're welcome. That being said, we like to ask our our guests uh, this same question: What is your favorite monster? Uh, well, you won't be surprised. The werewolf. What? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've, I've always loved where. Oh, I love the the original werewolf movie, Wolfman, or uh, uh-huh. movie Lon Chaney. Um, and I've I've loved virtually every one ever since. Um, even the not very good Benicio del Toro movie from a year or two ago. You know, I, 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 I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that one. I, I thought, honestly, that it wasn't his fault. It was uh, um, Hopkins uh, phoned it in to me. Yeah, and yeah, I agree. It just mm-hmm. like if 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 he had he can do better, and he's done better. And I don't know mm-hmm. why he went with that sort of uh, over the top Hannibal Lecter type character. Right. Uh, yeah, it was just not sure. A little weird because um, it was yeah. easy. But uh, yeah, it was. He phoned it in exactly. But if I think if he hadn't, uh, the, the rest of the movie I thought really worked well. I thought and, uh, uh, so. Del Toro and Emily Blunt uh, did a great mm-hmm. job, and um, Sir Anthony let me down. Oh, yeah. Anyway, but I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. Oh, you're welcome. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. Today we talked about Killer Wolves and the Beast of Gévaudan with historian and author Jay Smith. A link to his book is in the show notes. In the interview, we talked briefly about the French werewolf legend of the Loup-Garou. Loup is French for wolf, but we were unclear about the meaning of the word garou. After we talked, Jay wrote back and sent us the definition. It is as follows a mythic, malevolent, or evil-doing figure, generally with characteristics of a man and a wolf, thought to wander the countryside at night. Variations of Loup Garou legend followed over from France to Louisiana, where the melting pot of American folklore produced the Rue Garou, which can be a werewolf or a variant of the boogeyman. Speaking of Louisiana, if you're going to be near the Big Easy in October... You should come to the Center for Skeptical Inquiry's first annual CSICon, or SICON, which will be in New Orleans October 27th through the 30th. The hosts of Monster Talk will all be there, including me, Blake Smith, Ben Radford, and Dr. Karen Stolzno. Go to csiconference.org for details. Monster Talk is produced with the assistance of Skeptic Magazine, and we thank them. 
We're also thankful for the support of listeners like David Rodriguez and Robert Smith, who used our donate button at mustertalk.org and gave generously. If you'd like a copy of Jay's book or any of the music from today's show, again, please check the show notes at monstertalk.org. We'll have links to all those things, plus more information about today's topic. A brief excerpt from Henry Hall's version of Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf opened the show, and then we heard from electronic artist Symbian Project, who has been kind enough to give us permission to use his music in the making of our show. You should check out his work on iTunes or Amazon.com. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. Stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. (laughs) 